Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Welcome to Family Worship Sunday. This is by design. I'm not going to go on a long diatribe about why that's so important. I was prepared originally for that. But instead, I just want to say that our family church experience is growing, and we have a new member with us this morning. Her name is Honora Jane Hurst, and she was born this last Thursday to Tyler and Tiffany. And this is like the good old days. This is my life, born, I don't remember what day, but I was in church on the first Sunday. So good job, Honora. Honora, good job getting your whole family here. Well done, little girl. So exciting. So you won't see Tyler participating much in the ne- next uh, few hours or days or even weeks. Um, he gets some time to just be dad. Well, it was my first official slumber party. It was first grade. All the boys in Mrs. Keith's class were invited to Jay Chapman's house for an overnight birthday party. There were 11 of us in all. What were our parents thinking? (laughs) 11 squirrely six-year-old boys sprawled out on the floor of his parents' living room. We didn't sleep much that night. Not only just being squirrely six-year-old boys, Jay's dad had promised that when he came home from work, I put that in quotes because I'm not sure that's what he was doing. But when he came home, he was going to be bringing pizza, and the slumber party was going to turn into a pizza party. So we didn't sleep much. You would have thought that pizza was like a once in a lifetime experience. I mean, they fed us dinner. It's not like we were hungry, but I just remember the buzz in the living room. Pizza, pizza, pizza's coming. Pizza, when's it coming? And so we waited. 10 p.m. 11 p.m. 12 a.m. 1 a.m. Pizza was on the way. Or was it? Did Jay even have a dad? I mean, to be honest, I had never seen the guy. And yet, this is what we were staying awake for. Many of us in here have been up all night. I don't mean that literally, um, but we've been up all night trying to stay awake for the greatest return of all times. The appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Up most of our lives, waiting for his return. The night has grown long. We've seen things that we never imagined we'd ever see here on planet Earth. I'm talking like mind-blowing technological advances, as well as the decay of a society that we just could not have predicted 50 years ago. Where is he anyway? And what do we do while we wait for his return. 
This is the heart of our text this morning. If you have your Bibles, open to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read from chapter 2, verse 28. There's only two verses left in that chapter. There is an unfortunate chapter break, in my opinion here. So the thought, I believe, continues on into chapter 3, verse 3. And as you turn there and uh, begin to think, let me give you a little bit of context and review. We're in the midst of a 16-week sermon series on the first epistle from the Apostle John. He is the last of the living apostles. He is the disciple, John, brother of James. James was the first to be murdered. Way back at the beginning of the book of Acts, we read that account. Um, They are the sons of Zebedee. And John is writing to churches under his pastoral care. He is writing to them and ultimately to us that we might have fellowship, life, and joy with the Father and His Son and with one another. But in order to experience this fellowship, life, and joy, we must learn to walk in the light as He is in the light. And so our study through 1 John has been a series of lessons on what it means to walk in the light. Quick one phrase review. Lesson one, take sin seriously. Lesson two, obey God's commandments. Lesson three, love one another. Lesson four, live as sons and daughters of God. Lesson five, break up with the world before the world breaks you. And then last week, Pastor Tyler, the last hour in the presence of antichrists, call us to an earnest and intentional pursuit of living for Jesus, loving like Jesus, and while living, learning about Jesus, loving like Jesus, and living for Jesus. And then lesson seven this morning is walking in the light as he is in the light, what to do while we await his return. Here is 1 John, starting in chapter 2, verse 28, continuing on through 3.3. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is and everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure now in the preceding context we discovered the presence of false Teachers. They are called antichrists, plural. Not the coming great antichrist, but many kinds 
of Antichrist that are, who are present in every generation. And they are described as those who went out from us because they were not of us. They've gone out of the church. They have denied Jesus as Savior and Lord. And they were up to no good in the local churches of Ephesus and beyond. They were up to no good in the lives of those who had remained in the faith. They were up to no good in the lives of those who remained in fellowship with the Father and the Son and one another. They were up to no good in the church. From last week's text, 1 John 2.26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. They've gone out, they've denied Christ, and now they're actually not content to just be out there. They're blogging about it and trying to sway. They don't have blogs, I know. I'm just kind of like fast forward back, you know. But they're trying to influence those who are still in the church. And according to the context, these religious deceivers are likely trying to tell them that their faith in Jesus as Savior wasn't enough. That they were not actually saved or forgiven children of God. That in order to be true children of God, to be uh, spiritual or saved, they needed something else, something more, or something better. And that is why John anchors this part of his letter in the genuine child of God's status of his recipients and men and women. This is going to be really important as we continue on through 1 John. John is never doubting their status as children of God. This is where he begins, verse 28, and now little children. Little children, I'm addressing the children of God. This is his designation for genuine, saved, forgiven Spiritually born again believers. And John emphatically doubles down on this designation at the beginning of chapter 3. Listen to verse 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, you and me, together. That we should be called children of God. And if that's not enough... He has to say this emphatic statement. And so we are. And then in verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. So how does that work? What's his point? And it's really important to understand. How does one become a child of God? So I just want to stop here for a moment and cite the end of 1 John. And then... Uh, Something from Paul's preaching in Acts to just make it really clear. How do you become a child of God that knows that you're forgiven, you're saved, you're, you're considered a born one? 1 John 5.13, I write these things, and I would say, I'm, I'm guessing it's the whole book in context. I'm write, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. You believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 
Can it be that simple? This is the preaching of the Apostle Paul to the Philippian jailer. When, when the uh, earth shook and the, the jail cell doors were thrown open and they did not leave, and he cried out, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus? It's a really simple equation. One, I'm a sinner and no amount of my good works is going to earn me back to God. One imperfection makes you what? Imperfect. And no amount of perfect can make up for the imperfection. So we need a savior. We need forgiveness of that imperfection. And you can't do extra credit work to get it expunged. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Where does Jesus and believing in his name come into the equation? We believe according to the Old Testament scriptures, he is the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Savior who will take away our sins. And so we believe in his name. And in so doing, we have eternal life and a new status as God's children. This is where John begins this section is affirming their true identity as children of God over and against the accusations of the antichrists that are trying to trouble them. He stands amazed at God's great love and acceptance of all of God's born ones. The strong ones and the weak ones, and the struggling ones. He is writing to all of God's true children. Yet the thrust of our text this morning is not whether or not they are true children of God. The thrust of the text begins there. The question for them and the question for us this morning is whether or not the children of God are spiritually awake spiritually ready by being spiritually active this is what he says once again and now little children abide in him it's a commandment to do something that's not guaranteed a commandment john trying to get them ready for that wonderful appearing of the Lord written to born-again Christians who sometimes do not abide like me how about you I don't always abide and in fact John has been really clear in the scriptures we've already looked at and I just want to touch them once again that there is a call for great humility in the true children of God to admit that we are not there yet. Back in chapter 1, 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John doesn't want us to sin. 
However, he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the point of me pointing us there is that true children of God don't always abide. And that's going to be a problem as we wait for the return of Jesus. See, this is written to genuine Christians who sometimes did not abide. He reaffirms their true relationship with Jesus, but he's urging them to strive for theological, moral, and ethical integrity with a sense of urgency that is appropriate to what is coming next. Bringing it up into their, the forefront of their mind so that they can spend their time preparing themselves for this meeting. 1 John 2.28 in its entirety, and now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And I want you to notice when, not if. When he appears, not if. And it's not a fill in the blank, but I really want to just highlight this. Every single generation of the church, every single Christian, every single child of God has had to prepare themselves to a face-to-face -face meeting with the King and the Creator and Savior of the world. Every believer in every generation must prepare for His coming. Can I just demonstrate how certain this will be or is for us? Did you know that there are at least 300 Old Testament prophecies concerning the first coming of the Messiah? The first coming of the Christ, the first coming of the Savior, all fulfilled perfectly in Jesus of Nazareth. You pick just two or three of those and they are mathematically impossible for one man to fulfill. You pick eight and they're astronomical odds that a person could actually fulfill these kinds of prophecies in one person. There are over 300. There are over 200 concerning the return of Jesus. Let me just give you an example. Jesus made many of them, we don't have time to go into 200, but just here, a, a sampling. He said to his disciples, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am you may be also. I will come again. In Matthew 24, Jesus is teaching, and if you're wondering what's going to happen in the world, go, go to the places that clearly teach of what's going to happen in the final run-up to the return of Christ. Matthew 24, 25 is classic central text. Matthew 24, just a couple of things from the, from the teaching of Jesus. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Verse 42, therefore stay awake, 
For you do not know on what day the Lord, your Lord is coming. Verse 44, therefore you also must be ready. This is Jesus talking, the one who will return. Telling first century disciples, stay awake. You must be ready. And then he adds, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It's the words of the Lord himself. And then at his ascension, Acts 1.11, Jesus has been taken up into a cloud. And the disciples are standing there with their jaws open, staring into the clouds. And an angel appears and says these words, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. It's just a handful. There are 200 of those kinds of prophecies. If one man fulfilled the first 300 concerning the first coming of Messiah, I think we can mathematically, statistically bank on the imminent, that means any time, the imminent return of Christ. It could be today. And let me just add this sticker. He will come universally in the same manner in which he ascended. Many of us will go one by one before his return. Either way, he comes for us. And we must be ready. Will I be ready? Will I be awake? Will I be waiting? That's a critical question because not all believers will have the same experience of his appearing. That is a theological fact that is taught in these verses. We fall in, and I find it in every camp of systematic theologies, we love this one-size-fits-all idea. Saved, saved, saved. We're all saved. Heaven's just blah. We all get there. Yay. Awesome. And we miss like, every book of the New Testament and some of the Old Testament. The idea that we're going to stand before him one by one and give an account of our lives, not based on our sin, but upon our faithfulness. Were we ready? Were we waiting? And the warnings that come again and again and again to the children of God, are you ready? Are you waiting? The two options are outlined here in verse 28. Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence. The word here for confidence, parousia, freedom in speaking. An openness, there you are, I've waited my whole life. You're here freedom of speaking, seeing him, confidence, or shrink from him in shame. Why would they do that? Because they're asleep. Because they weren't ready. They weren't prepared. We must understand that he will return for us in love, and that's good and if you make it to that moment and you're counted in that number, it is a very good day. But we must understand the clear teaching of the scriptures that he will also come for his own as our righteous judge. 
And so we must take this time to prepare ourselves to get ready for and to be about our Lord's business until he returns. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is explaining his apostolic ministry and mission and heart when he says these words, we make it our aim to please him. The Apostle is going, wow, this is a motivation and a driver. Why? Next verse, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And that is written for believers. That's written for children of God, not the world. So, if Jesus is going to return, if we must meet him face to face, if confidence or freedom of speaking or shrinking away in shame are real options for God's true children, what must we do today to prepare to meet him then? And now, little children, abide in him. We must abide in him. What in the world does it mean to abide in him? Let's answer that in just a moment, but let me give you your, your bottom line. Bottom line, fill in the blank in your bulletin. Abiding in him guarantees. Guarantees. I always spell that word wrong. G-U-A. I always use G-A-U. It's G-U-A-R-A-T-E-E-S. Abiding in him guarantees great confidence at his appearing abiding in him what does it mean to abide in him uh, the word is meno in the greek and it literally just means to continue to be present but what is included in this continuing to be present we get a foundational understanding of abiding in him from last week's text that pastor tyler unpacked for us first john 2 23 through 24 it's immediate preceding this this verse no one who denies the son has the father that is what the apostates did those who went out from us because they were not of us the antichrist they denied the son and the father no one who denies the son has the father whoever confesses the son has the father also let what you heard from the beginning abide in you if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So uh, there's a certain idea of do not move off of the plain and simple gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I believe he is the Savior. I call on the Savior. I receive the Savior. I am a child of God. Do not add to that. Do not cast away your confidence. Remain on the simple, forthright gospel. What else must we do to abide in him? I believe we have two more clues from today's text. And here they are. Abiding in him includes... Practicing righteousness, which flows from the new nature. I'll read it again because some of you are writing, filling in the blanks. 
Abiding in him includes practicing righteousness which flows from the new nature. Here's the verses. I'm going to reread verse 28 and 29 this time because this is a logical flow that he's putting in there to explain what does it look like to abide in him. He goes, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him and shame at his coming. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is really important. The, the Greek verb practices is present active participle, meaning the subject is doing the acting. We're not just saying his righteousness in me, God's doing all this. No, it's something that I am actually choosing. I am participating in a kind of righteousness. And what he's saying here is that uh, since God is 100% righteous and his son is 100% righteous, those who practice righteousness from what is described in the scripture as the new nature or the new self, they're easy to recognize as being born of God. But he is not saying that everyone born of God always practices righteousness. There is a choice here. And in order to explain this, I need to unpack two theological ideas of righteousness that are both taught in the New Testament. This is not the first kind that is a wonderful kind of righteousness. It's called imputed righteousness. That when we exercise faith, when we call on the Lord and our sins are forgiven, it is as if someone drops a million dollars in our checking account that does not belong to us. It's a gift. It is imputed. It is placed on our account. Because if you're a jerk before you come to faith in Christ, when you come to faith in Christ, you become a born-again jerk. It doesn't go away overnight. I wish to say that's why church work is messy. We are messy. I am messy. In the meantime, while God is doing a wonderful work in us, we get to borrow the righteousness of Christ. It's imputed to our account, and it covers us. Praise Jesus. It covers us, and that's how we can take communion without being burned up. Because I guarantee you, you broke God's commandments this week, and you forgot what they were, and you can't be ready enough to take communion without the imputed righteousness of Christ. We could never figure out enough of our sinful ways to be called pure. Imputed righteousness. But this is a kind of righteousness that can be practiced by the person according to the word and the tense of the verb. It flows from the new self that is given to us along with the imputed righteousness, but it is called a practicing righteousness. We get to live out of the new self. We get to choose. We get to make choices to join him in his work in us. This is why Ephesians 4.24, Paul said, put on the new self. That's a commandment. Put it on. And he's talking to believers that are born again and forgiven. 
and have the imputed righteousness of Christ. He says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put it on a decision every day, every moment, every second. Put it on. So this kind of righteousness is the intentional, participatory lifestyle of a proactive obedience to God and His commandments, which corresponds to and flows out of the new self, the new nature that comes from being born of God. And a great way to understand it is found in Chapter 2 of 1 John, 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought, should. It doesn't say will. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We should. We've been given the desire and the ability, but we've been given time and choice. And so the choice is, what will I do? I'm facing a new temptation. And it might not just be like a sexual temptation. Oh my goodness, I'm so triggered. It might be a temptation to blurt out something wicked and hurtful or gossipy. Any number of sins included in this that derail practicing righteousness. But I would also say it's more of a proactive, positive pursuit of the Father's work. We're going to actually get to the sin side of the struggle. I think it's in this text. But this practicing righteousness, we're walking as Jesus walked. His morality, his ethics, his heart of love and sacrificial ministry for others. We're trying to model our lives after the master. And this is the practicing of righteousness that is so essential that we engage in if we are to be confident at his appearing. Here's the second thing that we see in the text. Fill in the blank. Abiding in him leads to self-purification. That's an interesting word that we're going to come back to. Self-purification, which is fueled by a confident expectation of his appearing and becoming like him. Beloved, we are God's children now. This is verse chapter 3, verse 2 through 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. I love his humility. Paul might have a little more revelation. John's being true to what God has taught him. He goes, I'm not sure all of the ways we're going to be like him or, or how the resurrection or uh, the moment of seeing him. I'm not sure all the ways we're going to be changed. He's, he has several things in mind, but... He admits what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes, hopes how? That we're going to see him and be like him. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is where the word self-purification comes from. We always think like, God is cleaning me up. It's all him, not me. Oh no, not me, not me. And, and yet, again, the verb and verb form here is 
present active indicative. It's active. The, the subject is doing the action. Not him, but us. We are participating with him in what he is doing in us. We are making choices. And everyone who has this kind of hope actually takes part in this kind of self-purification. John Stott describes it this way, true. Only the blood of Christ can cleanse us from the stain and guilt of sin. But we have a part to play in purifying ourselves from its power. We participate in this process. And how would I describe this? I would describe it as an earnest and intentional pursuit of genuine holiness. We must understand that the promise and the goal of our sonship and daughtership in Christ, the end goal is that we would one day be like him and be able to stand in his presence and see him face to face without being undone. That is the purpose of our salvation. And when we have that hope, we participate in the preparation for that day. It is how we become confident at his coming. How does this, how does this work in our, in our real world? What is that like? I grew up in East Phoenix. It's called the Arcadia area, not Arcadia, California. And uh, something kind of cool about those neighborhoods, they were all orange groves. And as such, they, they uh, have a series of underground and above-ground canals that bring water from the Salt River into the Arcadia neighborhood. And uh, the yards there are deep, lush, and green. And every couple of weeks in the summer, flood irrigation would come. The irrigation man would ride up and get out in his galoshes and open the valve. And if it was in the daytime, we loved to skimboard. We'd take pieces of plywood, sometimes we'd shape them, sometimes they were just big squares, and we'd just throw them and go booking and, and skimboard in the yard. The backyard was the best because that's where the valve was, and that's where the water was the deepest, but there was also a problem in the backyard. We had dogs, and no one was on dog duty. So that was kind of gross, but we would do it, but then we thought we got smart. We'll just wait for the front yard to fill up. It wasn't as deep. It was almost as fun, not as deep. You had to wait a little bit. But then we'd skimboard the front yard and say, yeah, that was great. And at least the water wasn't full of dog bombs. One problem. In order to get to the front yard, it had to go through where? The backyard. So we would skimboard in wretched, filthy dog soup and think that it was a blast. Men and women, we've been born into a world of filthy, wretched dog soup. We just thought it was fun. We didn't consider the consequences or the nature of rebellion against God. We didn't consider the price tag of playing in the soup. We thought we got smarter as we grew up, wiser, how to avoid the consequences, and yet in the end, 
we're all still covered in filthy, fetid dog soup. Oh, that we would understand the nature of sin in walking off off the path of abiding in Christ for what it really is. It is sloshing and rolling in filthy filth. We need to stop playing in the irrigation. We need to bathe. We need to take actionable steps to get as far away from the irrigation swamp as possible. We need to take steps to purify ourselves. You know what's in you. You know you hate it. You know it's gross. I, I had a nightmare. The reason why I'm telling the story, I had a nightmare. I haven't lived in that house for, for 30 years. And I had a nightmare this last week about the backyard and dog bombs. I can't even walk through it. I'm like, oh, I don't even want to walk. I know wherever I step, there's a, an old decayed stack, and it's just so gross. And that's why my kids have dogs, and I'm like the OCD guy. I'll clean it up, but it's going to get cleaned up right now. And so we got dog bags, and my backyard has no evidence of dog bomb. I just, I can't handle it. I, can't, I don't know how you guys do it. When I go over to your house, I go, dude, does anyone do dog duty? I, I'm just like, I'm so offended and grossed out at this point. I've jumped my neighbor's fence to clean up their yard for them. <laughs> I'm shocked and appalled when I see it in someone else's yard. I'm like, Wah! it's like a nightmare for my childhood. Oh, that we would all be so offended. So offended and just put off by what John said two weeks ago. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It says, love not the world or the things of the world. The things of the world are passing away. They're already on their way out. They don't work. They're disgusting. They're vile. Sin in any form. There are no acceptable sins. But the one who does the will of the Father remains forever. Paul would tell Timothy, a young pastor at age 35, well, actually 37 at this point, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, you don't wait around, I'm waiting for God to clean me. No, no, he cleaned you. Stop going back into the irrigation water. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel up for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work, so flee youthful passion and pursue righteousness faith love and peace along with those who call on the lord from a pure heart how do we abide in him how do we prepare for his return we participate in practicing righteousness and we purify ourselves whatever it takes to make progress away from sin and the filth that clings to us. What do you need to do? There's one of our elders that sends me a daily report from Covenant Eyes. Because he wants to ensure that he never participates on his phone or laptop or a computer in that which would pull him away from abiding in Christ. I have deleted my Instagram and Facebook apps on my cell phone. 
because of its ability to draw me away from the path of abiding in Christ, what do you need to do? What needs to be done? Well, it was my first slumber party. Jay's dad finally showed up at 2 a.m. He came into the house like a tornado. Loud, boisterous, crazy. I had no, no filter to understand what was going on at the time. But at least he brought the pizza. Actually, he brought a half-empty box of pizza. It was the biggest disappointment of the whole party. This is the hope of the world. This is the hope of sin. This is the love of the world. Men and women, we have a better promise. We have a better promise maker. We have a better promise keeper. The Lord Jesus Christ. And he shall return in the same manner in which he ascended. He will not disappoint like Jay's father. But will I be ready? Abiding in him guarantees great confidence at his appearing. Will you be ready? What needs to change today? What needs to change tomorrow morning? What kind of practiced righteousness will you engage in from here forward? And what kind of self-purification will you engage to be sure on that day? that You will be confident at his appearing and not shrink away in shame. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.